FTC's big antitrust suit against Amazon, which makes two cases, one of which is that Amazon has by by linking its prime membership with Amazon fulfillment, its shipping process. That is an anti-competitive process that has harmed both competitors and consumers. Welcome everybody to Learn With Lowell. Today we're gonna learn about the DOJ's Google and FTC's Amazon antitrust cases, as well as uh, technology policy and what's going on in Washington and uh, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, so kind of a political uh, episode. Today we're joined with Chris McKenzie, who's a senior communicating director at the Chamber of Progress. And so just to give you kind of some scope on Chris, who's joining us today, uh, this is this is the list of what he's been up to. So he's been in communications in politics for over a decade. Uh, he's the senior director of Communications Chamber of Pro uh, Progress, which is a center-left technology industry policy coalition. He's a veteran of Capitol Hill on the campaign trail, having served as communications director for former rep uh, Kendra Horn. Uh, there's like a bunch of, of people he's helped with as well. Uh, previous roles, working with rep John Delaney, Terry Sewall, uh, uh, directing the New, York, New Hampshire campaign for Delaney's presidential race, which I believe uh, did better than Biden's in terms of the turnout, if I remember correctly, <laughs> and uh, led the communications for the U.S. Public Interest Research Group uh, for Democratic campaigns, and you know graduated surprisingly with a, a poli sci degree. So, uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Who would have guessed? <laughs> yes, who would have guessed? Yeah. Thank you for the kind introduction. I really appreciate it. Yes. Is there anything about you uh, that I missed there that you think is like noteworthy, just for people listening in? I, there's so much. I uh, I designed three different board games actually. One um, is a trivia strategy game, and two are hmm. war games. What are are they like? Well known? Like, no, I go absolutely, by them? absolutely not. That's why they're not on my resume. Uh, but it's just something that I do in my in my pastime. I have a three D printer. I design my own board games. Uh, that's just a little bit about me. Oh, that's fun. Well, I play a lot of board games. It, what is uh, just before we dive into the more uh, some eighty stuff just for a fun question? What is your like go to board game or couple of board games that you play? So like, let's say it's Saturday, we're all we're all going at your house. Like, what are the board that's games you throw down? And yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I think Wingspan, fantastic game. We call mm -hmm. it Burbs. Um, very kind of lighthearted. Um, at any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial and it tells google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching thank you for everyone thus far who has commented liked, subscribed and told their friends and then axis and allies of course is a, just a classic war game always always a good time axis and allies it looks like risk on steroids is that how long does it take to play a game in that that's a good description yeah no it's it's risk on steroids um it takes probably six hours Something like wow. that. Okay. It, can, it can take a very long time. Yeah. Is it a game that w is enhanced with alcohol, or does alcohol get in the way of, of good strategy? <laughs> um, you'll lose quicker, so the mm. game will be shorter. So in some ways, it could be enhanced. <laughs> Sweet. The, yeah. I know it's been on my list of checking out uh, and playing. So if, since you you've been, you enjoyed, I'll add it to the next time I have a party. If you're ever in the Midwest, you know, yeah, maybe we can uh, destroy the axis together. Assuming we'd be on the allies, but um, the uh, jumping into wait, actually, what do you three print? Is it the board game pieces? Yeah, yeah, the board game pieces for the most part. I've designed one outdoor uh, strategy war game, so a game that can be played in a park where the pieces are big enough that you won't lose them in the grass, and that's something where I three D printed all the pieces for the board game myself. So, do you um have you ever done like LARPing? Like uh, I think that yeah. seems like 
That seems like you know, be every, everyone has to draw a line for uh, where they stop nerding. And that's that's my line. That's as far as I go. Yeah, I don't go to LARPing. Okay. I've done it once. It's actually a lot of fun. They're usually just like a bunch of moms, uh, <laughs> like being referees <laughs> and letting their kids go wild. But you it's wouldn't really expect nice. that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I thought it would be different than that. If, if LARPing for everyone listening in is live action role play. So, but like, Chris and I would have like nerf swords and attack each other. My college had like zombie LARPing where you had a, like nerf sword zombies that would hoard you randomly around campus. So as long as you had like the right bands, they would just start attacking you, which is actually kind of fun. That it was like the largest club on campus, I think. That's funny. That's funny. Yes, but uh, all right. So diving into the you know what we're here for, other than you know learning about you. Yes, Uh, DOJ versus Google, FCC versus Amazon, antitrust uh, cases. Uh, I've thought for some time, especially Google. I'm surprised that they've gotten away with not having some some more things pointing in their direction. But for people who don't know. Um, and you're, you know, the master on this stuff, where should we start to really start unraveling what's going on right now? Well, it depends on which case you want to unravel first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like you're starting with Google. Uh, and here's what I would say. Um, I hear, I hear the way you're thinking about this case, which is the amount of traffic that Google's search engine has compared with a lot of other traditional search engines on the internet, right? You're probably thinking about Bing. Um, Bing, obviously, fairly small share of traffic next to Google's. Although the real question and one of the kind of thorny issues that the court is tackling in this case is what is actually the market definition of the market that Google's competing in, right? Because there are a lot of different ways that people can search on the internet. Um, For instance, uh, approximately 50% of Gen Z use TikTok as their primary search engine. Of course, you and I might think of that as just a straight social media platform, right? But that's not how other people use it. Additionally, Google competes against, say, Amazon in searches for products, right? People will go to amazon.com not fully knowing what product, what maker, what design they want to purchase. And they'll put a search into that platform and we'll see what comes up in the marketplace. So that's also uh, where Google can compete with another platform. Another example is um, say TripAdvisor, right? You want to plan a trip. You don't exactly know um, what you know flight, uh, what flight you want to take, what car service you want to purchase, or what sort of hotel room you might want to buy. You can search on TripAdvisor. It's like a very specific sort of search engine. And so Google competes with a whole range of websites across the internet to uh, to in 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 what it does. The other question that I think is being tackled as a part of this case is whether Google used anti-competitive practices to stifle competition. So not only you know is Google dominant in say one um, in one market, but in order to make its case, the DOJ is trying to prove that Google has actively used anti-competitive practices to try and squash competitors. So that's what the case is really about. Is it? Is there um, a general threshold that one has to meet to dominate a category before they start getting these types of conversations? For instance, I think the like to your point and adding to it, the the number one search engine on in the world is Google. The second largest search engine in the world is YouTube. So that they have like a quite large market. So the, when, when do they get to the point where they're it's like too big 
And then I think the I'm, second question is like, yeah, how do you prove that they're like being unfair? But yeah. I'm glad you brought this up because actually in the DOJ's case, the case that they're making, they don't count YouTube as a search engine, right? Mm-hmm. They count, it's like Google versus Bing and that's it, right? Um, which again is, uh, depends on how you define the market. Um, I don't, I don't think there's a specific, there's not a specific threshold that companies have to meet to be, um, you know, legally uh, a monopoly. And additionally, you have to show that you are, you know, uh, eating up a large share of a market. And again, using anti-competitive practices to kind of step on your competitors, right? So it's, it's a combination of both of those things. And the case that the DOJ has made here is that the anti-competitive practice that Google is using is that they are making deals with Apple and Samsung and Mozilla and others to be the default search engine um, on devices produced by those companies, right? So when I get an iPhone, if I open up Safari, um, it's going, and I do a search on Safari, it's gonna do that through Google. Similar on, you know, Mozilla on their browser or on Samsung devices. And so DOJ's case is that they are purposefully spending this money and sponsoring those companies, making these deals in order to step on any chance that Bing had of competing with Google. Uh, And so it sounds like colluding. And I read uh, in Walter Isaacson's book on Apple that Apple... Google and all these people have worked before. I think it was on uh, hiring practices. Like they wouldn't poach from each other. That the big five would like work together not to poach each other's workers, so they wouldn't get paid and comp go out of cycle. So it it, it seems like there's like a trend of like some of the big players working together to like own the market. Yeah, yeah, there is. Oh, there is certainly some level of agreements between some of big tech. I would actually say that today's tech marketplace is more defined by high levels of competition, right? So for instance, TikTok is no longer just a social media platform. It's now a search engine. It's now expanding into shopping to compete with Amazon. It's now expanding uh, into fulfillment for its shopping, right? X, or formerly Twitter, uh, Elon Musk wants to make it the everything app. It'll be a payments app. It'll be an AI app. It'll be a direct messaging app, right? All of these things. So today we're living in an era that I would define as the everything app era. Everybody wants to be the everything app. They all are embarking on AI and virtual reality and shopping experiences. Um, And so in a way, you know, we've left behind an era of tech when each of these companies kind of had their individual lane that they were focusing on. And now they're competing. I, I call it competition everywhere all at once, right? Uh, every app is kind of expanding in a half dozen different directions to compete with each other. You know, this isn't to say that everybody always stayed in their lane, right? Like Google back in 2008 launched their Chrome browser, right? But this would be like if in 2008, six different tech companies launched competing web browsers that would take on Internet Explorer, right? Uh, That simply wasn't what was happening. So I think what we're seeing today is actually more competition between the tech companies who are 
pretty fearful overall that if they don't enter a new space, if they don't challenge the other members of, you know, these five or six or seven tech companies, that they'll have their lunch eaten, right? If they'll miss out on AI or miss out on virtual reality or miss out on payment systems, and they can't afford to do that. So they all are competing with each other everywhere to some extent, right? Some of them have made deals. The fact that Google has made a deal with Apple or Samsung um, or Mozilla isn't illegal by itself, right? Like we know that's a fact. Everybody knows they're paying these companies in order to be a default uh, search engine on those platforms. And in some cases, it's really beneficial to parties other than Google. Take Mozilla, for example, right? This, this web browser. It gets most of its revenue, not from being a web browser, but actually from its deal with Google to have them be their default search engine, right? That's where it gets most of its profit from. Um, and so that actually, in a way, increases the level of competition among web browsers because Google has effectively funded another web browser um, by, by, by paying it to be the default search engine. The question isn't whether Google has made these deals. The question is whether these deals are anti-competitive and squash competition. Does Bing have you know, less of a chance because Google has made these deals with Samsung, Apple, Mozilla. Hmm. Yeah, you, you you kind of guessed at one of my questions. Uh, what was it going to be? Which is that um, when does it become go from like good business, like hey, I'm investing in all these companies, and you know, basically just like ensure market domination. Um, it sounds like the the delineation between just like being good business is when you start like making it so that no one can compete with you in a fair way. That seems like one of the delinea uh, delineations, like you can make, you can exactly. invest in all these places and that's fine. But if you make it in such, such a, a moat and such a wall that no one can climb it, it's like, it's unfair. It sounds like that that's what one of the problems is. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. Part of this question is how big is the moat, right? And the moat in this case is switching web browsers. If your default is, or it's not web browsers, uh, search engines. If your default search engine is Google, how hard is it for you as a user to switch search engines to Bing or to DuckDuckGo, right? And the answer to that is that it's actually not that hard. On an iPhone, on an iPhone for instance, it takes about four clicks to move from using Google to using some alternative. And a lot of users do switch web browsers. But the funny thing is, they are sorry, search engines. Uh, the funny thing is, they switch search engines away from Bing to Google, right? <laughs> uh, and that's not be, you know, certainly if you have um, a PC, right? If you have a, a PC comes with Internet Explorer built in or uh, Edge now built in, Microsoft Edge, and a lot of users switch away from Bing to use Google. The reason for that is because Google's search engine is actually a better search engine than Bing's. It's not a secret why. They've invested a lot more money into making it the best search engine possible. And Microsoft has actually shied away. One of the things that com has come out during this trial is that Microsoft has shied away from uh, investing additional funds into Bing to make it an even better search engine. 
Part of the reason is because they think it's going to be challenging to compete with Google, but it's kind of a self-defeating prophecy, right? Like you never invest those funds to begin with. You never build out the team to make Bing a better search engine. It's going to have a tough time at that point, gaining a larger share of users who are interested in, in using a search engine. Is there a time limit? Is there like a, like statute limitations where like all this new competition and all these new people trying to be everywhere apps uh, can start eating into that moat and bring them down to the point where they can't be uh, adversely anti-competitive. So like if if like for like ten years Microsoft or Google or Amazon or whatever was like pieces pieces of crap to to their uh, to competitors, uh, but now they're being brought down and like humbled a little bit, maybe like five percent market share, ten percent market share, or something like that. Um, does it? You just like, oh, okay, well now it's fixed, or do you do you, do we still go after them? And this is like literally, I don't know. Like, do we, no, no, do no. This is a really good question. Past? Yeah, this is actually a very relevant question, and the the reason is because this is kind of what the FTC is encountering this year, and I'll tell you why. Because the FTC back in I want to say 2014 approved Facebook's purchase of Instagram, then, and said this isn't a competitive threat. And then, you know, Lena Khan started as chair of the FTC. And what do they revisit? They revisit Facebook's purchase of Instagram as anti-competitive about a decade later, right? And there wasn't a statute of limitations that stopped them. But the case did become substantially harder. Because part of the question was, you know, the agency has looked at this deal before, and it hasn't done anything. Right. So at that point, um, that's that's really going to be working against you. But I want to get back to for a moment um, the question of how big of a moat does Google have? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and whether Google's, you know, which came first, the, the, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. Right. Uh, are users with Google because it's a better search engine or user, users be with Google because of anti-competitive practices? And one of the, a couple of the things that I'll note are that some of these platforms have considered using alternatives to Google as their default search engine. A uh, great example is um, Microsoft actually made Apple a higher offer. Uh, uh, they, they offered to make this payment to be their default search engine. And Apple actually rejected that offer, took less money from Google Part of the reason is because they didn't want to subject their users to Bing, right? I mean, if you're offering a top-of-the-line smartphone, users are probably going to be upset if their default search engine is Bing. Not that it's that hard to move away from it. People do all the time. But it didn't fit with what Apple was trying to do. Similarly, um, I believe it was Mozilla uh, actually went through with making Bing their default search engine and found that so many users were switching back to Google that it didn't make sense as a user option and it was making their users less happy, right? So we know that A, users are able to switch, that regardless of which platform you're on, switching from back and forth between Google, Bing, DuckDuckGo, what have you, is not that time consuming, not that hard. And B, Part of the reason that Google has such a high rate of use is because it is such a good product, because mm -hmm. users prefer using Google over Bing. I mean, I, I would almost put the question to you. You open a browser, you want to do a search, 
which search engine are you going to use? Would you go to Bing or would you go to Google? Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Google. The I, I do like the Bing and how they're integrating OpenAI into it because then it's yes. more a contextualized search, which is interesting. But now uh, Google has that and I like Google better. They, it's more like a, they're better at indexing, which is no surprise. Well, this actually this actually came up during the during the court hearing, DOJ's uh, court hearing against Google as well. We're about halfway through the trial right now, by the way. So DOJ has made its case. It's brought out all of its witnesses. And some of its primary witnesses against Google were from Microsoft. Because Microsoft is a competitor and they can speak to whether these practices that Google was, you know, uh, these ways that Google was behaving were harming competition, right? And in cross-examination, one of the things that has come up is Microsoft's launch of its AI integration earlier this year. And a lot of Microsoft executives at the time, they launch this integration with OpenAI. They say, this is actually going to allow us to out-compete Google. We're actually going to be, be able to become, with, with this integration, a better search engine than Google is, and users will come to us. That's interesting because the case the DOJ is making and the case, what Microsoft said during examination was that there was nothing they could do to compete with Google because of anti-competitive practices, because of default search deals, right? So on the one hand, you had Microsoft saying, there's nothing we can do to compete with Google because of these deals. On the other hand, you have Microsoft executives on the record who are saying, OpenAI has opened the doors to competition for us and we're actually gonna eat Google's lunch now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The my, the, I guess that's kind of like a Hail Mary moment, though. Like, OpenAI was, to my knowledge, really only exists because Elon was concerned about stuff. And then for, so it's like, I, it feels like Open one AI? of those things where, like, Elon? Yeah, OpenAI. Yeah. I I wasn't aware of OpenAI's connection to Elon. Yeah, I, I mean, it. it's a Sam, Sam Altman platform. Yeah. Uh, uh, Elon Musk was like the largest funder in the beginning. And he pulled in the beginning. The, okay. Got yeah. It. Yeah. I think now, like the last like, couple of years, he left because he didn't like how it was being privatized and being sold to Microsoft. You can read it about it in the latest Walter Isaacson book on Elon Musk, which I, I'm less of a fan of it for reasons that I don't want to distract us from. The, but the, the bottom line is the Elon Musk, like, was the one who convinced the leading AI experts to leave their cushy jobs and to join it and then build OpenAI. And many of them left from Google. So it seems like if you, if you were to like delete Elon, we wouldn't have OpenAI, which then we wouldn't have the capacity for further competition from making other people because they weren't able to build it in-house. I only say that because like, I'm just wondering, it, it feels like if the like oh, AI in and of itself is kind of like, it came in randomly and it's like a big disruption. So that, it is a huge like, disruption. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah. it's here. Right, the fact of yeah. whether it would have existed, whether you know who started it, regardless, it's here. Microsoft has this deal; it's integrating AI, which, as you said, you know, interesting as a user. I'm excited to see how this plays out. And the question now is, can Microsoft compete now that it has AI on its side? Can it compete? Yeah. Um, and that's you know, all of these are questions that the DOJ has to answer in their favor during the court proceedings. And what makes this case so challenging, again, is that the DOJ has the burden of proof in this case. And so all of these questions, they have to get the court on their side. The question of market definition, 
they have to get the court on their side. They've talked about a marketing funnel and where Google lies in the marketing funnel. They'll need the court on their side on that. The question of whether defaults matter and whether users can switch easily, they'll need the court on their side, right? I, I compare it to Democrats winning the 2024 elections in the Senate, right? Notoriously going to be very difficult for them. The, you know, in order for that to happen, everything would have to go their way. Every state that's a swing state would have to go to Democrats, right? It's very similar in this DOJ trial right now. In order for them to win the whole case, every question that's really before the court has to go in their favor. So that's how I describe kind of where we're at at the moment, you know, halfway through the trial. And we're about to embark on hearing from Google's witnesses and finish with uh, we're finished with the DOJ's witnesses. So things can kind of only get harder for them from here. Yeah, I'm a little surprised to hear the how many things have to go right for them to prove their case, given I, I have friends who have said, and I think people can read this like this is like something that people say on the Internet, but um, which doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but the that like the FBI, for instance, like if the FBI is on you to like, he's like going to try and put you away. Like they have like such an ironclad case. They should try to make a, a plea bargain immediately because they usually are just like so uh, fully researched in terms of like before they go and hit someone um, is. Well, this is a perfect this is actually a perfect segue yeah. because there's been a slate of cases from the federal government targeting big tech companies from both the DOJ and more notoriously even from Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission, right? And so far this, you know, so far in President Biden's term, these cases have not gone their way. What we knew starting out when these officials were appointed to their posts was that they had their eye on these big tech companies. Lena Khan got her start, her star kind of rose when she wrote a law journal, a journal article highlighting a new, laying out a new theory of antitrust um, that would potentially take down Amazon was her, was her thought. And that theory was that rather than focusing antitrust on harms to consumers, we really need to be considering harms to competitors, right? Antitrust traditionally has been that you have a case when anti-competitive practices are resulting in a harm to consumers. And Khan made the case in this uh, Law Journal article, which has kind of gone down in history, that um, we, need to, we need to also consider harm to competitors. Uh, and that's where, our, that's where maybe we can win against big tech. And so when Khan was appointed to chair of the FTC, a lot of people rightly expected uh, a focus on taking down big tech companies. That's exactly what we've gotten from her, from Jonathan Cantor at the Department of Justice. The, you know, where, where those expectations haven't been met is in the result, in the outcome of those lawsuits, many of which have failed. There's actually a, they, you know, at this point, they have a fairly bad track record in court. They sued Facebook pretty early on over its acquisition of a very small VR firm, saying that that was anti-competitive. That lost. They sued Facebook again, um, kind of reopening the case of its acquisition of Instagram. That also failed. Uh, and now, of course, they're taking on Amazon over 
what seem like a couple of long shot cases, right? One over dark patterns, which we can get into. And the other is uh, kind of a broader, the big one is what some journalists call it, uh, a broader antitrust case, focusing on Amazon's integration of its prime membership and its fulfillment services, as, uh, as well as its buy box, Amazon buy box practices. But anyway, the point is, when uh, I think the opposite is true in this administration, you said, when the FBI opens an investigation against you, you know, you know, you're kind of screwed, right? In this case, when the DOJ and FTC have opened an investigation against you, you know, you might stand a chance in court. Uh, at least so far, that's what the track record says. Yeah, the, so the difference in perspective on what's antitrust, harm to consumer versus harm to competitors, yeah. does, does the law and policy back that up that perspective? Well, that sounds kind, like it doesn't. That's yeah. kind of where Khan has fallen down in court, right? Is an inability to show harm to consumers um, has harm has has disabled her from making her case. Uh, so it's um, I would call it an aspirational application of the law, which some proponents of this sort of application, this less consumer-focused application of antitrust law, have said, well, if Khan and Cantor and the Biden administration fail at making this case in court, it will only prove to Congress that we actually need to pass bigger, stronger antitrust laws that broaden the definition of what an antitrust violation is, right? The opposite has been true in some senses. We've seen Lena Khan failing court. And instead of inspiring, you know, everyone in Congress to pass new antitrust laws, it's actually really turned off Republican lawmakers who've looked at Lena Khan's work in the FTC and said, that's overreach. No one gave gave her, you know, the authority to make these cases, right? And they're failing in court, but still, um, I think it's it's turned off a number of lawmakers who actually now kind of want to cut funding for the Federal Trade Commission because they don't want to empower a regulator to make these, you know, novel cases in court. They want someone who's going to enforce the bones of the law, traditionally what we've considered as antitrust. Yeah, the as you're telling me about this, the well, there's like two two trends, one that you just illustrated that if you keep swimming uh swinging for the fences, uh you know, there's that that saying that you're you're kind of like giving your opponents um, ammo to use against you, and they, especially if they like cutting a bureaucratic uh, funding and what have you. The other one is it sounds like I don't know if, if there's like a term for this in politics, but like when there's a, a young upstart given to a position, I, you see this in like finance where um, when you have like a bad quarter, or a bad couple of years, uh, and I think a lot of baby boomers are probably going to start experiencing this as they go to retire, and there's like recessions and stuff that happen. People try to try to like swing for the fences more to make up for their losses but the problem is that just means you lose harder and yeah. worse things come from it so it seems like there's that trend of like they're trying harder and harder and harder um to make up for those losses so they can have a better track record the problem is that they don't have the track record to back up what they're doing and uh at least the larger question i was gonna ask you because i've been i've been hearing um there's like the a push to improve um the irs like the number of people in the irs because like it's, it's underfunded and all these different yes. things and people didn't like that because they're like, oh, you're just going to attack people and or what have you. But 
like the IRS is, doesn't have the capacity to go after like millionaires or something. I think that was like the logic because they're like so underfunded they can only go for they're very well funded. People who can millionaires. Yeah, they've got yeah. good lawyers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, the so it seems like those are the two trends. Like the they went. It's like that upstart person who's who's trying to do something and it's like kind of questionable in terms of the law. And but the problem is like every time they lose, it sounds like they try to now they're at the point where they have to get like six, th- you know, whatever the number is, things just right going their way to really prove their point. And um, if they don't, which is very likely, uh, the Republicans or whomever is going to be like, well, why do we even fund you guys so much anyway if you're going to keep losing taxpayer money? And making cases that aren't supported by the law. Yeah. Generally, right? Um, I think one of the interesting facts is that, you know, Khan came in here as an opponent to big business, right? Kind of wanting to um, increase the amount of cases the government wins against the private sector and, you know, whip big tech into shape, right? The, the you know, opposite outcome has actually been true here, where past FTC chairs haven't necessarily, they certainly haven't lost in court as much, but they also have um, made more settlements with companies, which I think um, on views as concessions, right? But the fact is that settlements do achieve consumer results. In a settlement, the agency and the company will decide not to go through with the trial and the hearing and whatnot, And instead, they'll say, well, you change these harmful behaviors to consumers and you pay this fine, we'll call it a day, right? Khan has eschewed settlements in favor of going to court. And that's resulted in both more losses and fewer settlements, which are actually good for consumers, right? So like the sort of tough on tech um, attitude has actually resulted in less wins for consumers, Additionally, court cases take a really long time. It's very possible that Khan will start some of these cases in the Biden administration, and the next person who comes in to take the role of FTC chair will walk away from these suits, right? So it, it, there's little telling in, in some cases how, how they'll pan out or whether Khan will even be here when the you know final, final judgment comes down. You think the FTC had sufficient funding to try these cases fully? Or would you think they lack the resources to really go into depth like the FBI can and make sure they're wins? I don't think that ultimately it's a resource problem. Mm-hmm. I think it's a case problem. I think the fundamental facts of the case aren't supported here. Um, and I'll, I can start with the FTC's you know big antitrust suit against Amazon, which makes two cases. One of which is that Amazon has, um, uh, by by linking its Prime membership with uh, Amazon fulfillment, its shipping process, it has that is an anti-competitive process that has harmed uh, both competitors and consumers. I think because of the court losses that Khan has experienced, we do see some level of. Um, talk in these complaints about the impact on consumers, right? Uh, and then the second question is, or the second claim they raise is that Amazon's buy box policies of highlighting the lowest price for consumers on their website has actually raised prices across the internet for consumers. 
This one, we're going to have to stretch our minds a little bit to get there, but we will. So the first one is pretty simple, right? You have a Prime membership, you get two-day shipping. You get free two-day shipping, or in some cases, one-day shipping. The reason for that, that that is available to you, is because for Prime available products, Amazon runs its own shipping. We all know Amazon has these warehouses, you know, staffed by Amazon workers that, you know, contain products from any number of sellers, right? Millions of products. And from those warehouses, they ship on Amazon trucks with drivers paid by Amazon out to your house. That's how they guarantee delivery in two days. There's another option, which is that they could allow sellers to choose their own delivery method. That is available for sellers, right? Sellers can, that is an option, they could do that, but then their products wouldn't be prime eligible. Now, the problem here, according to sellers, is that consumers only really want prime products. If you or I go on Amazon and I'm searching for anything, a garden hose, I'm going to be honest, I'm almost always going to click the garden hose that comes with free shipping in two days rather than paying the extra delivery fee and who knows when I'm going to get it, right? So those sellers who choose not to participate in fulfillment by Amazon see that their products don't sell as well on the platform. And they claim, and the FTC claims, that that is anti-competitive. The issue is that the alternative, that Amazon incorporates any shipping a seller wants in their Prime membership program, is not viable. They have actually tried it before. They had a, um, a seller fulfilled, a, a fulfillment by seller program, where they said, Listen, you can be part of the Prime program. Getting the product to the consumer in two days, that's up to you. You know, you don't have to pay our fulfillment by Amazon fees. You can choose your own shipping method, but you got to get it there in two days because that's what we've promised to our Prime members. And what they found was the products weren't getting there. Consumers were unhappy because they weren't getting their two-day shipping. Um, and so they ended that program, right? And so the the... <laughs> The issue here is that there's a clear benefit to consumers um, from the linkage in uh, Prime Fulfillment by Amazon and the Prime membership. The other issue is that this is actually a pretty common practice. Walmart does the same thing. They have a marketplace and they have their own fulfillment uh, uh, warehouse. Uh, and so making the case that this is an Amazon specific practice that has harmed competitors, one of which is Walmart, which does the same thing in its own you know, fulfillment, and that it's harmed consumers is actually pretty challenging for them. So that's that's kind of one of the primary cases that they're making. And I'll pause there. Yeah. Does anything in their case account for the fact that uh, Amazon sometimes sees what's selling well and then makes it their own product and then undercuts the other person that originally was making it. So I was reading that that happens a lot. Not this case. I think it's disputed. I, I honestly think it's disputed how much data Amazon uses from its mm. own platforms to determine which prime products it wants to make, right? And this case does not focus on that. Um, it 
does, yeah, I mean, again, these, these two issues primarily are what it tackles, the linkage of prime and fulfillment, and then the uh, it's buy boss practices of if you're doing like a one-click shopping, which product is it going to elevate to the buy box, right? Those are the two issues it tackles. Um, but I do know that it's data practices. So the EU, interestingly, made a similar um, claim against Amazon that these shipping practices, its linkage of fulfillment by Amazon and Prime membership were anti-competitive. And what did they ch- do? They chose to settle with Amazon instead of taking the big swing in court. And the settlement they came up with, part of it was um, how Amazon uses data it receives on its platform from sellers. So um, certainly, you know, if the FTC were willing to uh, make a settlement, uh, it's possible that, you know, it could it could address some of these issues. But Yeah. If you were, you know, at Khan's side and like able to help her navigate these things, are there, it, sound, it sounds like the impression I'm getting, you can correct, maybe you're just like telling it so well, but it sounds like these aren't the cases you would necessarily pick. Are there, uh, and if so, like, are there better cases that you'd more navigate her towards to have the impact that she's looking for? Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm glad you asked this, right? There's, I want to talk for a minute about another case the FTC is making, which is its dark patterns case against Amazon. Do you know what dark patterns are? Nope. It's um, basically a difficult unsubscription process. When you are on a website, dark, a dark pattern, it like, oh, like some membership a subscription. And then like, you can't find a way to get yeah. out of that subscription and stop paying for this thing every month. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the FTC has claimed that Amazon um, is is uh, is practicing this behavior in its unsubscription process for Amazon Prime, that it is too hard for Prime members to unsubscribe from their membership. Of course, like I really dispute that. I, I think that I think that that's incredibly hard to prove, and that it's actually pretty easy for consumers right now. Yeah. It takes about six or less. I think it's four to, between four and six clicks to get out of prime membership. And it's, I encourage you to try it because it really isn't hard. I was curious myself. Yeah. After the, yeah, after the FTC launched this, web, this, this lawsuit, I was like, is it hard? But I'll tell you what's hard. And I, you know, it's a little bit of a taboo subject in the press. It's unsubscribing from a local newspaper. Have you ever tried to do this? No, it's, I get free it's, news. It's monstrous. It is monstrous. Mm-hmm. You have to call on a Thursday between the hours of 1.30 and 3.45 p.m. and talk to the right representative in order to, you know, stop your subscription. It's incredible. I mean, signing up, of course, for, you know, uh, your Gannett subscription is very simple. It, that's That's five clicks right there. But you want to cancel that subscription. You got to talk to someone in person. You got to wait on hold for probably 45 minutes. It's incredible that this is still a behavior that that is is happening in this country. So yeah, I mean, I think there are legitimate cases that the FTC could make uh, about uh, dark patterns to protect consumers. I just don't think they're against Amazon in particular. I actually, and I, I think this is an important point here, consumers like Amazon a lot. It's not just where they shop. If you ask them, 
do you enjoy Amazon using Amazon? Like 90% of consumers will say yes. You ask them how often they use Amazon. It's like every week. You ask them, um, do you, what is the thing you value most about Amazon? It is two-day shipping. People love that free two-day shipping. And going straight after this platform as a political target for the practices that consumers specifically love about it, right? Targeting targeting two-day shipping, that, you know, it's not just a bad legal case. I just don't think the political case can be made for it either. I think that, uh, you know, Amazon's Prime membership and two-day shipping program aren't what Americans have a problem with today, right? I actually, I don't, you know, I don't think that there's evidence, of course, that they're raising prices online. I think that there's evidence that it actually makes it a lot easier for consumers to shop for goods. And when you ask voters... Look, if Amazon's practices made it more expensive for sellers to sell their goods online, but it made it cheaper for you, or not more expensive, but you know, if um, if Amazon could, you know, decrease costs for competing sellers on its platform by eliminating like two day shipping, could it do that? And they're like, no, absolutely not. Should the government intervene in Amazon's work to make it easier for small businesses and sellers um, over consumers? Absolutely not. What people want is a platform that is easy for consumers to use and cheap for them in an inflationary environment, especially in today's economy. People want to get the best prices on the internet. And that's what Amazon's platform tries to offer. That's what they value. Yeah. That makes sense. Then uh, that's, that's my soapbox. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so then, what? Um, and maybe I missed it, but like, where would you target the FCC then? Like, where would you push them then? If the, if this isn't where the, spa- the the case should be made, are there places out there that if you were at con side that you would push her towards? Um. Well, one of here's one of the things that I was interested in. Uh, here's here's what I would say. Right. I would say. It's not a mistake to target the biggest companies in America. It's a mistake not to look for settlements that achieve consumer wins, right? As um, you know, it it's possible that maybe Lena Khan could have come to a settlement with Amazon to improve its consumer practices instead of going to court, where he'll face a very, you know, difficult, she'll have a very difficult case to make. I would have done that. I would have advised her to do that. It's possible that Khan could have made a settlement with Microsoft over its Activision purchase rather than taking them to court. But instead, she lost. It's possible that she could have made a settlement with Facebook. The list goes on, right? I don't think it's a mistake necessarily to target the biggest companies in the United States. I think it's a mistake to roll the dice in court on very, you know, unlikely cases rather than coming to an agreement where you can notch progressive wins that are consumer focused. Yeah, that makes sense. What what is the what what benefit is there? I th- I, you, you talked about like what comes from settling. Like what more would someone get? What would more would Khan get with a win other than just, you know, like I won, I got what I wanted, whatever. Like what would be the repercussions of uh, she won in court. for Facebook or something? Yeah, if she just like full on won, like what what 
happens to these companies? Well, this is the real question, right? This is this I think is the million dollar question of let's just take Lena Khan's case against Amazon as an example. Her case that Amazon fulfillment by Amazon and the Prime membership shouldn't be linked. If she won in court, they aren't linked anymore. She has to pay a fine. But I think that the bigger question here is what happens to the most popular online marketplace in the United States? Uh, and what happens to two-day shipping? Because people love that, right? The fact is that Amazon would have to change its practices to offer sellers the ability to be a part of its prime eligible products, but at the same time, offer them the ability to ship with other fulfillment services. So US Postal Service, for instance. And so what we would likely see is a prime membership that maybe can guarantee you free shipping, but it could not guarantee you two-day delivery. We'd see a worse product for consumers, ultimately. The other example is the buy box. The buy box on Amazon. So the case they're making here is that in order to be eligible for the buy box, it's possible that Amazon requires you to basically offer the lowest price on Amazon that you are offering on the internet. So if you're if you're selling your product elsewhere on like REI's website, you can't be selling your product on REI's website for less than Amazon. You have to match that. You have to basically be able to sell your product for the lowest price uh, on Amazon, which consumers like because when they shop on Amazon, again, we've, we've done a lot of surveys on this. Consumers want to know that they are purchasing something for the best price available. Um, if the court were to rule that that was anti-competitive, then we would probably see retailers raise some of their prices on Amazon. So consumers would pay a little bit more. And sellers, again, Khan's focus has not been necessarily on consumers. Ever since she wrote that paper, it's been on how are small sellers able to compete um, when they have these requirements placed on them by this giant platform. Small sellers might have a little bit of an advantage in that case, right? The biggest beneficiary, if these court cases went in the FTC's direction, in every case would be sellers. Buy box policy, you get to raise your prices a bit on Amazon. You know, fulfillment services, you get to choose how you're shipping. Maybe you pay less because you don't have to pay to be a part of Amazon's fulfillment service. It sounds like for her objective, it's like a perfect victory. Like even if she wins, it'd piss off so many people that the you know the politicians would probably start curtailing, like you know either cut funding or you know change the laws so they couldn't do it anymore. It feels like yeah. even in the win, it's a loss. I think that um, you know the the strange blessing for the Biden administration is that a win is so unlikely in these cases that you know politically, you can say you're fighting a good fight. But ultimately, you don't have to worry that the court is going to disband two-day shipping because mm -hmm. the FTC, again, has a very hard case to make. And Khan and some of her allies have again said, well, if we fail in court, at least Congress will come in and fix the laws so it's easier to make antitrust cases against these tech giants. But in fact, we've, as I've said, seen kind of the opposite reaction from a lot of Republicans. Yeah, I imagine if they they could set it up where they won the cases and it resulted in people enjoying it more and then started like a lobbying campaign behind it, then you'd probably get that result of 
updating the laws to meet even larger things versus just hoping that doing a good the, the other way uh yeah no if like, they won the you, case we, and and everyone was happy because two-day shipping wasn't a thing anymore if that if that was the world we lived in i'm sure congress mm -hmm. would consider acting yeah but that's not yeah, the world. that's not the that's not the world yeah I, that sounds like uh, uh like kind of like a misplay i guess in terms of like putting con in the position to make these decisions that sounds like um like she was or they i, I don't remember the gender but the they are focused she. on something that inherently is not going to work um i wonder like uh the the logic behind uh posting that person then like uh is it kind of like uh student loan forgiveness where people feel like this person's doing something that i like but then you can kind of like uh play it slow so you have people like pay attention to what you're doing or was there actual intentionality and in having someone was it intentionality and actually someone who could do these things to fall through on it or was it just the trying of it the the goal of it um you know i think it's a really good question uh i think that the democratic party is a very big tent party mm -hmm. i have worked in the purplest districts in america you know like little blue dots and red states and being a democrat there means something else than it does in new york city and san francisco right the left wing of the progressive party wants something different for the most part than like mainstream democratic america and the appointments of Khan and Cantor and Tim Wu for a lot of people were seen as um, kind of uh, Biden, the Biden administration handing a win to the far left progressives. I think his administration has really been a coalition of, you know, long uh, policymakers from kind of across the spectrum of democratic politics. We've seen cases where even some of them probably aren't, you know, quite in agreement on the same issues, right? Uh, there is uh, the Commerce Secretary that Biden has, Giramondo. We we believe she's done a fantastic job. She's worked to hopefully amend, you know, she she works to amend some of the EU's antitrust laws that directly targeted American tech companies. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have Lena Khan at the FTC, which has actually lent staff to the EU to help them implement those same laws that we had that Gina Raimondo raised concerns about that will target our own companies. Um, so I think, again, big tent party and Biden, after his victory, can't come into the White House and ignore the you know, needs and the dreams of the, you know, far left progressives, who's, you know, one of their biggest uh, enemies is big tech, or at least that's, I think, what some people perceive. Is the, are progressives unified enough in what they're going for? So you could like split off to make like a third party? No one can make a third party in America. That's no. Uh, I, I think that, I mean, the closest it's ever come is uh like ross perot and um ralph nader and that was never even close right in our two-party system the way our primaries and our elections work is that third parties ultimately act as election spoilers 
work and throw the election in one direction or another if you peel off enough Democrats or enough Republicans. But I don't believe there's room for a third party in a fundamentally two-party system. If progressives were allowed to, you know, sit, like have the majority in the Senate, um, you know, all the way up and down like, in terms of being able to like implement their policy, yeah, what would America look like that it doesn't have today? Like, what would that change look like? You guys could like really just have the ability to just like work and do what you want. Progressives or Democrats? I, mean, I think you're on the progressive people. So I, I would assume uh, starting there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a center left Democrat myself. Right. Okay. Um, I, th I thought like maybe that was under the, the guise. Of oh, and, no, I, uh, you know, we're okay. We're we're a center left Democratic aligned organization. Um, but you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe myself as, uh, far left. Um, okay. if, listen, if I, I, so I can't, I can't speak for the far mm -hmm. left, you know, yeah, no, I was, I, I would like, just like talk, uh, pause there. I really was just trying to see what you wanted for the nation. I oh, thought yeah, sure. you were under the banner of progressives, but whatever, whatever you are, that's, that's all I want to know. Your, your will gets to be, to be done. Antitrust laws get to be changed, uh, through the normal uh, means or whatever. Like you're, you're, you're present, you got to, uh, a herd of Chris's in your cabinet. You got a, you know, a, a bunch of you guys in the Senate. You know, what would what would center left uh, policy in America look like? Sure. So I've got my magic wand, <laughs> my super majority in the Senate that can overcome yes. the filibuster. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I let's see, what would it look like? I, I really do think that I share a lot of the same values as the Biden administration. Right? Equity, opportunity um and uh sustainability uh you know action on climate change that helps make sure our planet is you know livable for many generations to come i think that it's uh you know it's heartening to see biden tackle a lot of these issues i i <laughs> Maybe he has poor, you know, maybe maybe his approval ratings haven't been fantastic lately, but I'm actually a huge supporter. I think he's done so much, honestly, to tackle some of our big problems, right? Um, he's passed incredible climate change legislation. Um, you know, one of the, honestly, biggest victories in our fight for renewable energy uh, and to reduce emissions in a very long time. He's passed um, a massive chips funding, uh, broadband funding, you know, packages uh, to help make America competitive, to help make American companies competitive. I think that's really important. When I talk about opportunity, I think about how can we make this country more competitive in a global economy, right? And I think some of that has to do with how are we investing in these emerging sectors and making sure that everyone has access to the tools they need to be successful in today's, again, global economy, right? You need Wi-Fi to do well in school today, to get a job today. Uh, and under the Biden administration, we've seen a lot of action on building out broadband and making that more accessible for people. We need chips to have a functioning supply chain, to make our automobiles work, our smart fridges work, our dishwashers, every home appliance. And we've seen a massive investment in uh, the CHIPS, through the CHIPS Act under his administration. At the same time, I, again, huge fan here, uh, 
I think one of the clever things that his administration has done is to use some of those investments in private industry, which I don't think Democrats should be the enemy of private industry. I think we should be the enemy of poor, harmful, anti-consumer practices in the private industry, right? I think that we should cheerlead uh, companies that are creating jobs while at the same time, you know, keeping a regulatory eye to make sure that they're on the up and up. Anyway, Biden administration passes the CHIPS Act, $60 billion, huge investment in private industry. What do they do? They don't just hand it over to companies. They create requirements to receive that funding to make sure that its benefits are going to be equitable, right? And that includes making sure that uh, workers hired under the CHIPS Act are going to have access to childcare. What does that do exactly? That actually opens up a lot of opportunities to women, not just women who are going to work in the chips plants. It also opens up opportunities for women in construction who've traditionally faced a concrete barrier into, into entering that profession because it operates at strange times and getting childcare when you need to be on a construction job is actually incredibly difficult, right? Chips Act creates huge construction opportunities because these massive you know, chip fabs need to be built out. And because of these requirements, we're actually going to see more workers being able to access those jobs. So I think, the, you know, really broadly speaking, those values of equity, opportunity, and sustainability would be my top priorities. I think in, in a lot of cases, Biden's gone about that in a really intelligent way. I think in some cases, the administration has had to back off because of, you know, um, kind of complaints from the far left. One example is passing, creating trade agreements internationally that benefit U.S. companies. I think the left has raised some concerns or, had, you know, kind of, um, uh, I, I want to I put this uh, appropriately, <laughs> as a... Uh, um, kind of pestered the administration over the possibility that those international negotiations over tech agreements will end up benefiting big tech. My concern is that you withdraw from those international negotiations about what tech rules should look like in a fair world, and American companies get left behind. So that's an example of something I would do differently. But, you know, for the most part, aside from like, you know, we've, we've focused on a lot of antitrust policy. But I think largely the Biden administration has done a great job of kind of tackling those major values. Great. So uh, for climate change, do you think like a carbon tax is like one thing to like levy against it? I think uh, I've heard someone say that if you just I'm always a fan of like incentivizing people to do the right things. So like oh, yeah. one way of tackling uh, climate change, do you like the idea of a carbon tax or do you think there's a better way of, of, of I, I don't know, just thoughts on it? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'll preface this with like, I'm not a climate expert, right? I work yeah. mostly in tech, but uh, I think market solutions are a, a generally smart way to go about addressing our emissions. Uh, carbon tax reduces carbon emissions by making it more expensive, right? At the same time, helping to subsidize the green energy makes that energy more affordable for industry, for Americans, and um, kind of creates, brings it up to scale 
as quickly as we need it to come up to scale because we have a lot of the good technology. I think one of the biggest hindrances, if I can uh, get right back on my soapbox, <laughs> to the success of Democrats is actually, sadly, kind of regulations and nimbyism getting in our own way. And climate change is a great example. My understanding of one of the biggest barriers to building out green energy is uh, connecting, you know, uh, connecting, kind of restructuring our national power grid while complying with the load of regulations that you need to build that out, right? One of our biggest challenges to solving housing affordability is kind of scaling back the zoning regulations that we have in a lot of big cities. One of our biggest challenges to solving roadway fatalities, I think we have an opportunity to solve roadway fatalities with autonomous vehicles that never drive drunk, never drive distracted, never drive tired, right? But the challenge to that is again, sort of a nimbyism uh, and a level of regulation that prohibits these innovations from being deployed. We have a lot of regulations in this country that are built to protect the interests of people who are already doing really well for themselves. People who own a home in a neighborhood where they never want to see a duplex because they love the value of their home. And they're actually worried that more housing is going to decrease the values of homes in the area. That's true, right? You build more homes. We actually lower the cost of buying a home. That's good for most Americans who are interested in finding a, an affordable place to live. That's bad for people who own a home and are unwilling to see that value go down, right? So I think that uh, the biggest, some of the biggest barriers to our success are, again, the, the regulations that we as Democrats have at times created in order to protect our communities, protect the environment, and this... Um, this uh, ethos of nimbyism yeah yeah and nimbyism uh interesting enough is like it's not uh like it's not like one political party or like political spectrum but like everyone Across does that political lines but, yeah yeah like there's a uh, republican places that do that. there's democrat places that do that which is kind of uh funny to think about because i think sometimes when people read about or hear about it they think it's like uh like just inherent conservative people like republicans but no everyone ever does it go to the barrier sometime they uh they have tons of it even uh, I love reading local papers. And there was one just outside of Chicago where uh, they were trying to put in a sidewalk and like ten new houses, and it was like it, it was the most f like foaming at the mouth. The people were, <laughs> were about like ten houses in a sidewalk. <laughs> it was like that you're gonna use the sidewalk. What, what's wrong with a sidewalk? It'll improve your property values. But like the way it was written it was like. Uh, they were like, you can be like the suburb of Chicago. And they were like, we don't want to be like the suburb of Chicago. It was just like almost like a movie, like how much people hate uh, these things, even though like I think on paper, if you do the math, like sidewalks improve your property value, uh, even home, you know, even like uh, the rezoning stuff, a lot of the times it improves your property value and stuff like that as well. The quickest way to get someone up in arms at a community meeting is to tell them they're losing their street parking spot. People will go nuts on you for that. And we can improve safety. We can improve sidewalk safety. We can improve bike safety by eliminating some of the road space that we dedicate to on-street parking. But it is hot button 
because that that nimbyism runs deep the i was i've been reading about singapore and how they have a system where i think it's i don't know if it's all land but i know like there's some land that's basically leased out for like 99 years and then it, you it comes back and then they can like shift things around to be whatever they want it to be the government leases um, it out i think it's the government okay. uh they lease out the land if someone correct me I, i've been just reading about this because the it allows them to like shift and change with the times and you still like technically own it and you can like sell it and stuff so it's like owning a property but you own a lease um it seems like a pretty good way of like if like all cities up to a perimeter were kind of that way we could like shift as like people um as like times change essentially but i don't think you could ever pass that in america people really love their land well more than that even people love their freedom right yeah. we're even democrats we're a we're a first amendment country we're a country where people want to be able to do what they want on their lands to say what they want in the public square and they expect that right right we've we i mean we've all been brought up that that is a fundamental right of living here uh and so anything that violates that including you know sort of a public domain situation um really upsets people yeah. i think that that was uh one of the things that i've read about recently is how germany and i believe france made any pro-Palestinian protests illegal following the attacks on Israel, right? Protests that, say, were focused on even supporting, you know, Palestinians from or protecting Palestinians from a bombing campaign or invasion by Israel, right? Following, following the attack on Israel by Hamas. That is inconceivable to me in America that we would ever outlaw someone from protesting for a you know specific uh, issue you know especially a foreign policy issue on our streets that that just seems like it's in direct violation of kind of what the constitution stands for so different you know different countries different expectations i think for what government should provide to you and what your rights are as an individual mm-hmm you know, I, I agree with your uh, what you're saying that it, it is a really nice thing in America we can voice our opinions and not be uh, thought policed into a, a cell somewhere. Um, that brings us to we'll, Section 230 and content moderation. <laughs> yes, uh, but I, I know I wanted to hear learn more about like your job as communications director, uh, someone who handles communication. And so on your on your uh, your bio, it talked about how like you're good at connecting with center left voters through leaders. Uh, uh, and thought leader, sorry, mildly dyslexic through digital media campaigns and traditional press outreach. And so I'm just kind of curious as like, things are more digital. I think Obama was like the first like digital president and like used all these different things to like, you know, sure. get, a, get a hold of people. How do you get in touch with the center left voters that you really want and, you know, share your ideals and stuff like that? How do you uh, do, how do you have some of the outcomes that you, we've talked about, like um, helping someone do uh, outperform Joe Biden in the congressional district that they're in, which is, I think, uh, typically like the, the president does better. But yeah. so like, how do you do that? Like, what does that look like? What does your day look like to, uh, to do this? It's a good question. Uh, I've often described media outreach and relations a little bit like surfing sometimes, right? You're out there on, you know, on the ocean with your board, you're prepared and you're looking for the right wave to ride into shore. You aren't going to build your own wave in a successful way that's really going to make, you know, uh, a big impression for folks. 
you're going to need to look for the right wave to ride in and then find, you know, produce a strategy and tactics around a media relations campaign to kind of ride that news environment that you exist in into, into shore. One example, um, one of my proudest moments, honestly, as a communications director, as a communications director, I interact a lot with policy folks, actually. So I don't just write statements and, you know, uh, tweets. Thankfully, thank goodness, I do not spend all day on social media. Uh, I also work with our policy team to talk about, you know, given the stories that are in the news today, how do we advocate for our values in a way that people are going to understand and be excited about, right? Great example, uh, during COVID-19, when that, that, um, that pandemic originally struck, the, uh, you know, one of the biggest pieces of advice from the CDC was wash your hands and stay home if you're sick. That was like all they had. That was like the best idea we have is walk your hands. Uh, and in Oklahoma, in our congressional district, I actually happened to know that we had more water shutoffs than anyone, pretty much any metropolitan area, because of water bill non-payment. And so we had thousands of residents who did not have access to water at home to wash their hands. And so I talked with our legislative team and our district team about communicating with the Oklahoma city mayor and asking him to turn the water on for these people, regardless of whether they've paid their bill. We're all facing a pandemic. We're in this new and honestly terrifying health situation where we're getting images of body bags coming in from New York. And how are people supposed to deal with it at home if they don't even have running water? So our and the initial reaction that I remember getting from the municipal water authority was um, no, right? Uh, and so what did we do? At that point, it became a little bit of a media relations campaign to put public pressure on those people to make the right call and turn the water on. We released publicly a letter that we wrote to them asking them to turn the water on. And I gave it to the news and let them know we're happy to talk about this and why it's really important right now. Of course, the news is looking for ways to, you know, new ways to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, which at that point was the only thing that you could put in the headlines, right? And so this very local perspective on how people were being impacted and what's being done to solve it was, was really welcome. Um, and uh, we, in the end, we were successful, actually. Uh, the, the city government turned the water back on for Oklahoma residents. They were able to wash their hands. Of course, the pandemic, you know, went on in new and unexpected ways for the next two years. But um, that small victory, that, you know, that warmed my heart. And that's, uh, I think, kind of representative of what communications work can be at its best, right? Which is reading the room a little bit about what people are interested in and the biggest challenges they're facing and finding ways of talking to public figures and media outlets that point new solutions out. Yeah. Have you ever... Um, I mean, I... Yeah, that's really cool. No, go ahead. I would, I'm, yeah, what were you going to say? 
I think I think that there, you know, there I could go deeper on communications tactics. You know, it's I think the first things you think about when you're creating a public relations campaign is who you're speaking with, who your audience is, and what outlets speak to those people. Right? It matters what outlets I'm pitching with a story because they're interested in different topics. They're interested in different visuals, right? If I'm talking to a TV station, they often will want a really strong local landmark visual that gives you a setting um, for where your story's coming from. If I'm talking to the Washington Post, they couldn't care less about what visual I have behind me, right? So um, a lot of my work when I create some of these public relations campaigns is thinking about what audience am I speaking with? What outlet am I going to? And what story can I tell uh, that is interesting to all of those parties? Mm -hmm. The and uh, just a quick question on the the water shutoffs, uh, and then I'm going to ask you um, a follow up on that. The have you ever gone back and uh, compared your district, the ability to get people's waters turned on, versus a district that didn't, and the potential like life and effect that is? I think that for you personally, it'd be kind of rewarding to know, like if if one you know had you know, kept it the same and yours didn't. I mean, yours did and others didn't. And yours had like, you know, 4% less fatality rate. I mean, that's probably something I'd put on, on the wall behind you. You ever done like the math on like the the, the size of the impact of that? Uh, uh, I wish I had the data analytical, you know, skills to do that. But mm. ultimately, so many independent factors that, yeah. you know, I, I don't have the skills to contribute to that, including what's the rate of, say, mask wearing, you know, what were yeah, the yeah. local ordinances? in place about gatherings what gathering sizes mm -hmm. people could have all the schools and all that stuff so i don't have i don't i don't have the uh the tools or or the skills to do that unfortunately mm -hmm. but it would be interesting the best yeah. i can do again is kind of compare political outcomes right and and i have gone back and looked at how were our you know how did our elections go compared with similarly situated congressional districts I think one of the best things that we did on my last congressional campaign, my most recent congressional campaign, again in Oklahoma, was uh, transparency in communication with constituents, constant transparency in communication with constituents. Because especially during the COVID-19 campaign, people expected their member of Congress, their lawmaker to kind of hole up, right? Stay at home, stay safe. And we held a record number of town halls that year, both virtually and in person. Uh, and that was that was really powerful for people. That was something we were known for. We were actually known for being a very accessible member of Congress. So I think that's where I've found success in the past is connecting with people. And I kind of learned that actually from Congresswoman Terry Sewell in Alabama, who had a, um, a had a process each year where she visited every county in her district. And this member of Congress, their district was massive. This is one of the biggest ones I've ever worked in. It was 14 counties, which is just a huge swath of Alabama, including a lot of very rural parts with very few people in them. But she went to every county every year and did an event in every county um, to get that face-to-face -face time with people, which they value, right? They want their lawmakers to show up at the end of the day. It's very simple. Yeah, um, the... Okay, so I know we're coming to the end, so I'm trying to like edit down for our time. The for people who want who hear what you're doing and the impact it can have, or uh, what career like like political career advice would you give them to to find their way in um, to a place to contribute like you have? 
Mm, that's a good question. Um, I, I would, I would encourage them to look for places to work that align with their values, right? As someone who's lived in Washington, D.C., I actually, I actually think that a lot of that work can be here sometimes. So listen, you're welcome to move here. Our summers are absolutely horrifying, um, but the people are nice and they're passionate about what they do. Um, even for those at home, there are virtual opportunities today, right? Find a climate organization, find, uh, you know, um, a, a progressive tech policy organization. There's one of us. <laughs> uh, find, uh, you know, find a human rights organization if that's what you are most passionate about and get to work. You know, uh, I think that it, it feels uh, empowering to be able to... Um, work on uh, projects that, again, align with your vision for the world. So that's that's something I would encourage everyone to do. Yes. And then uh, when it comes to your work, you know, the strategy, making a narrative that people can resonate with, or just in general, uh, what books would you recommend people check out? It can be related to work and then like a sub point in case like, you know, too much is going on because I know you're a fiction guy. What books in fiction would you recommend people check out? So you have two different lines you can go down there. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to be honest, I don't have good mm -hmm. nonfiction recommendations, because I've, um, you know, I've cut that I've cut that piece out of my life for a little while. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you good nonfiction all day long. Uh, listen, I'm a little bit of a, as we've discovered during the past hour, I'm a little bit of a nerd myself. I love some good sci fi. Uh, some of my favorite books that I've read over the past couple of years, include Gideon the Ninth, uh, the mm. Scholomance series and Gone World, all fantastic sort of uh, sci-fi books. But yeah, that's that's my best recommendation. And it, listen, if you want to stay up to date with um, with activists and lawmakers who are active on the issues that you care about, sometimes the best place for that isn't just a book. It's going to be online, right? A lot of these folks are still on Twitter or they've moved to blue sky or threads, right? It's helpful to create an account for all the journalists you're interested in watching and read their work, subscribe to your newspaper. Uh, I think that's, that's the best way I stay up to date on what's happening in the world. Sweet. Yeah. I, I've not heard of any of the books you re uh, referenced, so I'll have to check them out. And for anyone looking for a nonfiction book, uh, Congress for Dummies was recommended to me by another person in uh, politics, so you can you can check on that if you can see it in my back right corner. Uh, you know that's one I'd recommend. It's for, it's very nice and it's for dummies, but it's, well, it's we'll not have me. To, we'll have to talk some other time to uh, go over its recommendations. I'm interested to hear what it has to say. <laughs> yes, it's just more like walks through uh, how things work. You know, oh. like very like kind of like how you described just a well, second ago right. um, how uh, how to get involved. You know, local politics that type of thing. It says like uh, how to find people to talk to if you have a certain issue like uh uh lobbying and, and that type of thing it's like it's pretty if you want if you're going to do anything touching congress or you just want to learn more about it it's a it's a very like three four hundred page little thing and i'll walk you through it good primer on it um uh, but chris uh i know we're coming then so i just want uh thank you so much for coming on today talking about these antitrust cases uh i'd ask you uh what it's what's your favorite antitrust president but uh i'll let that be the guest in the comment section who do you, who, who do people think it's going to be but chris thanks so much for coming on the show today Thank you so much, Lowell. Really appreciate it.